Uh, the Bible is full of promises uh, from God, promises that we can claim. Um, you know, most of our old and favorite hymns, and obviously most of our new songs, really any song worth singing, um, in that we sing are all about God's promises. And uh, it's exciting and it's um, heartwarming to sing uh, about um, all that God has promised us to delight in Him and to delight. In those promises and in, in, in his uh, delight over us. And you know, we could probably go around the room um, and share some of our favorite promises um, and never get a repeat. I'm sure we, y'all all have promises that you, uh, that you memorize. We all have things that uh, we learn, Bible verses that we learn, songs that maybe quote the Bible that we don't even know they quote the Bible, but they tell us about God. We all know and uh, could probably go on all night in a quieter, more intimate setting about what God's Word has promised us and, and how we can uh, find hope and, and help from Him. Um, and, and I'm sure all that you have, uh, all that y'all have um, are um, incredible, and especially the way they personally relate to you and the experience you've went through. But that song that we just sang uh, features uh, and makes much of one of the very first promises that I ever learned as a kid, as a Christian, growing up in church, um, never really being um, outside of the church. I, I got saved like everyone else has to get saved, but I grew up knowing that uh, there was a great and amazing God in heaven that promised us so much. And one of the earliest promises that I learned, probably before I ever knew it was actually from the Bible, of course I should have figured that, but before I ever knew where it was, before I ever could chapter and verse it, uh, this was a promise that I learned and that I uh, have always come back to and has been so pervasive and has been so powerful over me. Um, and of course, by now, the title and the song we just sing, you know what promise I'm referring to. And, and I want to go with the um, old King James uh, version of it because uh, I think that's the way we most, most of us learned it. Um, Psalm 30, verse number 5. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And that's the title of our message tonight, that joy cometh. We'll talk about why, why that old English version of that word come might actually be more important than just an old way to say it, uh, more important than we realize. Uh, you may know this, actually, that uh, the, the King, King James has a lot of words that end with that E-T-H uh, instead of just an S. Uh, there's no reason why, even in King James English, that the, they use, they would just put S's on words instead of putting the T-H. But the way English was parsed, and the way, if you've ever learned a foreign language, um, I'm sure all of y'all took a French class, Spanish class in high school, or you maybe since then in, in college or different things, if you ever took on foreign language, you know that there, uh, you conjugate words, right? And you know that there's so many different forms of words. English, believe it or not, used to be like that, but English has been so diluted and it's kind of been, for lack of a better word, kind of dumbed down and watered down through the years, you know, thanks to uh, uh, us Americans, we couldn't handle too much. But really, uh, our, our version of English is really kind of a light version of English. If you were to learn old English like you would go and learn Spanish or French or Greek or whatever, uh, you actually learn that there's all these different endings to words, they have all these different meanings, and that's why in the Old King James you'll see words that end with comest, or est, or you know, eth, or est. There's a mean. There's a reason for that. Uh, and and uh, English has lost a little bit of its formality, of course, through the years. Um, but the eth suggests that the word that it's modifying, the word that is modifying, in this case, the adverb, it's inevitable, as in it's going to come. It's a done deal because it's being assisted by or facilitated by something else. And, and I'll explain that a little bit better. Uh, that's why modern translations drop the eth but they changed the phrasing of that just a little bit to help us understand how the joy comes. 
Uh, newer translations would say something like this, joy comes with the morning. So the, the message there is, the idea of that word cometh is that, hey, when morning comes, joy is coming with it. Joy isn't an option. Joy is a product. Joy is a result of the morning coming. Joy has already been decided. It's already been settled. It's going to come because as sure as the morning is coming, so is the joy coming. Does that help make a little bit sense out of that? That the morning is what predicates the joy. If there was no morning, there'd be no joy. But because there is a morning on the way, there is joy on the way. We don't have to do something specifically to earn the joy. We just have to make it until morning. The point is, joy is a product of the morning. It's not just a potential. It's not just a maybe. It's when we get to the morning, there is joy unspeakable and overflowing. Now, we all know that this really isn't talking about night and morning. It's just a metaphor. The night refers to the bad things of life, the pain, the struggles, the trials, the tribulations uh, that may go on for a while. They last longer than a physical night sometimes, don't they? But when you're in that season, it's dark, right? But just like the sun always comes up and brings an end to the night, eventually that dark season will come to an end. And the reason why it's going to come to an end is because God is going to bring redemption to those who trust in Him. That morning is coming and the darkness will end to those that trust in the Lord and that He will provide deliverance from that season and from that trial. Eventually and certainly, morning will come and with it, Joy will come as well because we believe God is going to work things out for the good. What things? All things. So eventually and certainly morning will come and with the morning, joy will come as well. So here's something I only recently realized about this verse. So often when we're troubled, we, are so, desperately want, we so desperately want to be joyful. Isn't it true that when you're, when you're just down, you just want to be happy? But this verse tells us that we shouldn't chase after joy, that we're, we can't just say, well, I don't want to be sad anymore. I want to be joyful. When we're troubled, we often chase after joy. But come on, the trouble we're facing and the weeping we're enduring is a product of something. The reason why you're down is because something made you down. So the only way you're going to be up is something's going to have to raise you up. You didn't just get down and troubled and, 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 and dis discouraged and depressed because of nothing, right? You got that way because something made you that way. Something happened to you. You couldn't control it possibly, but something caused you to get down. So in the same notion, something is going to have to cause you to get up. The trouble that we're facing, the weeping we're enduring is a product, so likewise, Joy is a product. Joy is not something we can obtain, but something we receive. This is something the world misses so much. The world doesn't get this, and the world doesn't advertise this. The world says there's just all this joy out there. You just got to go find it. You can't find joy. You can't obtain joy. You have to receive joy because, after all, joy comes with the morning. So to receive joy, we've got to make it to the morning. How do we get there? How do we make it? Of course, in this scenario, the morning is God. Easy enough. The morning 
is God's intervention into the night. The sun's resurrection brings an end to darkness and replaces the weeping with joy. But only that sunrise can bring or can both defeat the enemy and provide us joy. That sunrise is out of our hands. We can't make it get up. We can't cause it. It happens on its own. God's intervention is what can bring an end to the night. And it's God's intervention that can bring us joy. And only God's intervention that will bring us joy. And only God's intervention that can take away the weeping that we may be enduring. But the heading in most uh, uh, every Bible I've looked at in preparation for this study uh, for John 16 is something like this. Your sorrow will turn into or be turned into joy. Maybe your Bible says that. Mine just says sorrow will turn to joy. One I was studying out of for this week said your sorrow will turn into joy. Maybe that's what yours says. Uh, but for John 16, in the passage, the verses that follow, this passage is all about the promises, the promise that we sang about, read about, and dove deep into discussing. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes with the morning. Jesus unpacks to his closest followers in perhaps the most intense conversation that they ever had about what they're facing or what they're about to face, but the hope they can have during it. Jesus is feeling the pressure. The disciples feel the heat from the enemy, even if they can't quite articulate it. The forces of hell have come about and against them and are surrounding them. And here's what we maybe or often overlook or don't really talk about. We think about Satan coming against Jesus. And that we think that Satan's just trying to destroy Jesus and defeat Jesus. But here's something I think we need to understand and we need to kind of uh, talk about. What Jesus was about to do, Satan could not stop. Jesus was God in a body. He came with one mission, to pay for the sins of the world. Nobody was going to stop him. Satan was powerless against Jesus and his mission and his road to the cross. Satan knew that, and though he could not resist the bait and wanted to revel at the chance to have his men blaspheme and disgrace God in flesh, Satan knew his cause was lost. But he knew that the disciples weren't Jesus, and he saw an opportunity to destroy their faith. Jesus knew the next few days would be crucial for his movement because he would die, and though he would resurrect, if his disciples weren't around for the resurrection, there would be no movement to kickstart. He knew that Satan had already taken Judas. He was chomping at the bit to take Peter. He was aiming to scatter the flock far and wide. So even if he couldn't stop Jesus' death and resurrection, even if that was already settled in heaven, he thought, I might be able to stop anyone from being there and seeing and hearing so that they can go and tell. And likewise, his same tactic is uh, true in his war against us. Listen, Satan is not, Satan's a lot of things, but he's not ignorant. He is well aware of how things are going to go down in eternity. Satan knows that he cannot undo what God has done. He knows that. Listen, we often doubt what God has done or can do. Satan has never doubted what God has done and never doubted what God can do. He knows he cannot undo the work of God. His only chance at success is to distract us from it. He's already been given a sentence in hell. He knows where his destination is. He just wants to take you there with him. 
He knows he has nothing on Jesus. He knows he has nothing on God. He knows his power is a drop in the bucket compared to the Holy Spirit's power. He knows he cannot undo what God has done. So people talk about, you know, the Satan trying to stop God or, you know, Satan trying to destroy God. He knows he can't do that. He's not trying to do that. He can't. He's just trying to get you distracted from it. He's just trying to stop you from plugging into it. He's not, he knows he's no match for what God has done. He's just trying to be a match for what you can do. And whereas he can't stop the Lord, he knows he can and often does stop us. So Jesus sits down with his disciples and gives them a word that proves so timeless for us as well. And here's the point of this conversation he has with them. It's about how to make it through the night, how to make it to the morning. Those two, two parts there, two crucial things. How to make it through the night. It's about to get dark. You're not going to be able to stop it from getting dark. Every night about between 8 and 9, depending on the time of year, it gets dark, doesn't it? Can't stop it. You might can move to a country where it, only get, where it gets dark for a very short period of time, but eventually... Everywhere, it gets dark. So Jesus says, here is how to get through the night. More importantly, how to make it to the morning. It's twofold, but they go together. So as you hear Jesus' words, keep the context in mind. Because if we're ever going to have joy, if our sorrow is ever going to be turned into joy, we have to first make it through the night, and we have to, more importantly, make it to the morning. Because we're, what happens in the morning? Joy comes. But unless we make it to the morning, there is no joy. That's how crucial this is for us to understand. Listen to verse 16 through 24. As Jesus begins to have the last conversation with his disciples in his earthly ministry. A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, you will see me. Because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will see me, and a little and a, again, or you will not see me, and again, a little while, then you will see me, and because I go to the Father. This is them basically saying, What's he talking about? I mean, and you have to understand, when they hear him say, You will not see me, they don't care what he says after that. Because they zero in on, What do you mean we won't be able to see you? It's like whenever you share some good news and some bad news with someone, they don't hear the good news if there's any bad news at all, correct? If you have a meeting with someone or you're talking to your kids or your family and you say, hey, here's five good things, but you bring up one bad thing, they don't listen to those five bad things. Our nature focuses on the bad and we dwell on it and we kind of you know, uh, tear ourselves up inside over it, don't we? So when they hear him say, hey, I'm about to check out, they say, whoa, whoa, what, what do you mean you're about to leave us? And they said, therefore, in verse 18, what is this that he says? A little while, we do not know what he is saying. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Most assuredly, or verily, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And your sorrow, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. So again, imagine hearing this. He says, you're going to weep and lament while the world celebrates. You're going to be sorrowful. And they don't hear the rest of that. 
Because when somebody hears that they're going to have a bad day and it's going to get worse and people are going to celebrate at your expense, there's really no way to understand or really see past that. But he promises your sorrow will be turned into joy. And then he gives this kind of striking, uncomfortable, but obvious, but easy to understand analogy in verse 21. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she is no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again. Your heart will rejoice. Your joy no one will take from you. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So Jesus is very concerned about their well-being. He's very concerned about their mental state. That's how bad it was going to get for them over the next little bit. That's how bad it gets for us sometimes. And I want to make it very clear, God cares about what goes on in between your ears. God does not just want you to kind of pretend. He wants you to have peace. He wants you to have joy. He doesn't want you to just file in line and pretend like things are okay. He wants to help things be okay. So God cares about you. He's a good father and he doesn't want you just to be lost in the shuffle of all the things that you go through in life. Now specifically for them, he was foreshadowing the next 24 to 60 hours of their life, the next day to two and a half days. We all know what, they, what it would be like for them. Beginning with his arrest in the garden, which was imminent at this point, he would be taken, they would be alone. But Jesus promises that this separation would only be temporary. Of course, when it all happens, those three days would feel like the longest three days of their lives. Time literally stands still when it all starts going down. And case in point, that's why if you read each gospel, the gospels cover three plus years of Jesus' ministry. And the first two-thirds to three-fourths of each gospel is all about those first three years. And the last third or last quarter of each gospel is all about the last few days of his life. That's how paying attention they were to those last few days because time stood still and moved agonizingly slow. And John, Matthew, and Peter observed every little detail with bating breath, wondering what was going to happen next because it usually wasn't something good. When Jesus tells them he's going to leave, yet not permanently, what do they do? They panic. What do you mean you're going to leave us? They couldn't imagine life without Jesus. They couldn't comprehend life without Jesus. But Jesus is telling them that this night that was approaching would not last forever. But it was indeed necessary in order for mourning to come. Now that might sound really simple, but that's obviously the case, isn't it? That if we're going to make it to mourning, we're going to have to go through the night to get there. And the night will not last forever, but sometimes it does get a little heavy. Theologically, there's so many questions and remarks and options, opinions we can take on this. But practically, come on, we can question whether or not night should ever come. And I'm talking about trouble and trials in this case. We can question whether or not night should ever come, but there's no denying that it gets pretty dark in this life. Everybody faces some kind of night more often than not. But here's what we know as Christians. Not even Jesus was exempt from the darkness. In fact, Jesus experienced the worst and most darkness. He suffered worse than anybody has ever suffered. So he wasn't exempt from it. He tells us that this darkness approaches that we should not give up 
on the morning that will follow. And here's where we're going with this. There will be many scenarios we enter into in life where it appears as if God is absent. There are many nights where we lay awake, literally, and we wonder where God is. And there are many seasons of our lives that we go through where it is dark and painful and confusing and desolate, and we wonder, where is God? And if God was with me, I would not be here. Or if God was with me, why am I here? We question where God is. And Jesus told them, I am going to leave you for a little while. But just because you can't see me, doesn't mean I'm not working. God is never absent. He is just working behind the scenes. We can rest assured that He will reappear. Verse 16 is a promise that is so underrated in the New Testament. Jesus says, there are seasons of your life where I will take a behind-the-stage approach. There are seasons of your life where it's going to get dark, the lights go out, the curtain closes, and you wonder, where is God? I'm promising you, God is not absent. He's just behind the scenes. And He will, He will, verse 16 promises us, He will reappear. But unless we remain faithful, we risk missing His appearance. He makes a promise, you will see me, but A would, be, would precede B. Sometimes, God goes behind the scenes to prepare for a greater act to come. Sometimes there's an intermission. Sometimes the curtains close and you wonder what's going on back there. But usually it's because a greater act is yet to come. Now, we know when Jesus left this earth, when he was killed on the cross, bled out on Calvary for the sins of the world, his body was laid to rest in a tomb, correct? He was dead. The Lamb of God bled to death. Jesus was fully human. His physical body was lifeless. Now, this is hard for us to comprehend because this is God in a body, but God in a body is still a body, correct? Jesus died, his body was laid to rest, fully human. He was lifeless still and grew cold. But because he was fully human, he also had a spirit and a soul. And his spirit descended into the lower parts of the earth, just like anybody's spirit would have descended in those days. Not to go too deep, but when Satan and his angels fell, God created hell to imprison and punish the disobedient. But when Adam and Eve followed the suit, God realized that hell was not just going to be for Satan and his angels as he intended. It was going to be for all the people that rejected him and disobeyed him and were to be judged forever. So when death entered the human race, God divided hell in two. The Old Testament calls it Sheol, which is the dwelling place of the dead, often called paradise in the New Testament. The Old Testament, or the God divided hell, the dwelling place under the earth, into there was Sheol and a chasm, and then there was hell. Sheol was the dwelling place for believers, those who died believing that there was a Savior to come, and hell was the suffering place for non-believers. But understanding this, Satan still asserted his rule over Sheol because ultimately he had won in his mission to keep people out of God's presence. 
And the reason why people did not go to heaven when they died was because they were still in their sin. And heaven can't accept sin. So people that died, though having faith in God, were placed in the resting place, were placed in Sheol, across the chasm of hell. But Satan still had dominion over this underworld because it was a way of saying to God, I kept people from you. Yet when Jesus died and sin was forgiven, Jesus descended to the lower parts of the earth to remind Satan that his act was not going to last forever. His dominion was over with. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 tells us, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive furthermore. I have the keys of death in Hades. Jesus descended to hell and raised Satan's stronghold and made it very clear to him his dominion was over. And then he crossed the chasm into Sheol. He crossed the chasm into what is also called Abraham's bosom. Abraham, the father of faith, for those that believe that God would one day redeem his people. Abraham, the first one who was made righteous by faith in God. Abraham's bosom, paradise, the place where the thief on the cross would have went, the last of his kind. Jesus descended or crossed the chasm into paradise. And Ephesians chapter 1 tells us this. When it's, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led hosts of captives and he gave gifts to men. That's speaking of the resurrection. That Jesus took a host of captives with him. Who are those captives? Paul says in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who has also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So what did Jesus do? He went into Sheol. He went into paradise. And all those that had placed their faith in a coming Messiah met the Messiah. And he said, hey y'all, I'd like to introduce myself. I think you have heard of me, but now you can see me. And all those that had believed were met with their, their faith, was met with sight, and he took them to heaven. And these gifts... This gift to men is the promise of God to all that believe in the Messiah. So going forward, there is no Sheol, there is no waiting place, there is no paradise, there's just heaven. Because Jesus ascended and took those captives with him, and you and I are not captive to our sin anymore. We are saved by grace, and we are given a free access, immediate access to heaven, all because Jesus descended first and then ascended next. His ascension gave believers of old true and eternal life and likewise promises us the same. But this applies to us in the here and now. Now I say all that to say Jesus said, hey, I'm going to be gone for a little while, then I'm coming back. But the reason I'm going to be gone is because I'm working behind the scenes to prepare for something better to come. But you're going to have to trust me that when you can't see me, I'm still working. And I don't think there's a greater work that he did than that behind the scenes three days or a couple of days when he was in hell raising the stronghold of Satan and delivering the captives of death. And that's why you and I have eternal life and the hope of heaven tonight. So that's an underrated promise of God, an underrated work of God, I think. But likewise, in the here and now, 
these same scenarios happen. God often is working behind the scenes while it's dark, and we don't know what He's doing. But that promise of what Jesus did after He died and when He rose gives us the assurance that when we go through things in this life, when it's dark for a few days or a few months or even a few years, when we're waiting on God to move, we can trust that God is at work behind the scenes. As sure as He raised the people from paradise, He's going to raise us from whatever we're facing. And the proof is, there is no more Sheol. And one day there will be no more death at all. Just as Jesus' death was followed by a resurrection, we don't have to dread trouble because we know that deliverance is coming. Can you imagine the thief on the cross when he stepped into paradise? What he would have said to them. Hey y'all, I don't expect to be here too much longer. Or too long at all. Because I just witnessed what we've been waiting for. Verses 20 through 22, I want to read these before we close. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. He gives the analogy of the woman having birth, and then he says in verse 22, Therefore you know... You now have sorrow, but I will see you again. Your heart will rejoice. Your joy no one can will take from you. So these verses are filled with promises. But they, are, they hinge on us facing similar circumstances, relatively speaking. There's another psalm that is also, uh, has also inspired another old hymn that I sang a lot when I was a kid that really adds, to the wisdom of this conver- adds some wisdom to the conversation that we're having tonight. In this same vein, Psalm 126 Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. But what is essential for the reaping? The sowing. He goes out weeping, bearing seed for the sowing, but he comes home with shouts of joy, bringing in his sheaves or his bundle of grain. But what is required to bring the sheaves in? Planting the seed. And what's required to have shouts of joy? Weeping. We will go through seasons of this life where we are going, where we weep and we don't understand why we're facing the things we're facing. But Jesus promises us that there's a part two, there's a next step. He is the catalyst that can turn sorrow into joy. That word sorrow, that word turn, right, speaks of something going from one thing to the other. Jesus is the key, He is the catalyst that changes the formula, that changes. The status. We can't stop believing. We can't give into darkness. We believe and know that He will bring deliverance. Whereas the disciples weren't at the grave counting down at the resurrection morning, we can anticipate and not lose heart. Look down at verse number 32. Jesus addresses their lack of faith. Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered each to his own You will leave me alone, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. He addresses the fact that they're going to quit believing. They're going to unfollow when things go down. They're going to run because they don't believe that the darkness of the cross is going to produce the brightness of the resurrection. They can't comprehend that. But guess what? On this side of things, we know that. And when we see darkness, we can already plan the resurrection's coming. When we see a cross, we can already guarantee there's an empty tomb on the other side. When we see a rain cloud, we know a rainbow's coming. When we see pain, we know joy's coming. Verse 33, one of the greatest promises Jesus gives us 
These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So here's what Jesus does, does in this chapter, and I think it's so relative to us. He addresses the gritty, uncomfortable nature of this life. There's darkness. There's nights that last longer than they should. But they are necessary to get where God wants us to be. Our place in Christ is, mo is more secure than our place in this world. We've got to remember this when we go through these things. Your place in this world may be unstable and shaken, but your place in Christ is more secure. When you feel like there's no security underneath you, rejoice and be glad because Christ is underneath you. His solid rock does not quake and does not tear. Therefore, our peace in Christ all allows us to endure the perils of this world. Our peace in Christ allows us to endure the perils of this life. So we press on through every night, trusting that we will overcome with Christ, knowing that joy comes with the morning. And you know how we don't have to question if the morning is coming? Because there's an empty tomb. Our crosses in our churches that we adorn walls and pictures and screens with and necklaces and jewelry with, they don't have someone hanging on them. They're empty. Because Jesus died on that cross, was taken off of that cross and placed in a tomb. And that tomb is empty. So we have the confidence that no matter what the night we're facing is like, no matter how hard or painful it is, as Christians, we know Jesus says in verse 33, I have overcome the world. What is the worst part of the world? The death and the pain that it brings us and the sorrow that it brings us. But we pass and we press on through every night, trusting that we will overcome, knowing that joy comes with the morning. We just have to make it to the morning. And by faith, we will. By faith, we can make it to the morning, but we have to take heart. We have to be of good cheer if we're going to experience this transformation from sorrow to joy. And don't let anybody lie to you or fool you. There's only one catalyst that can change sorrow to joy. And his name is Jesus. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you. Thank you for these promises that are too good for me to even try to preach. But thankfully, they stand bigger and apart from me. God, in this life, we indeed face trouble. Anybody that doesn't believe the Bible should read verse 33 because it says you'll face trouble in this life. Of course we do. But God, the joy of being a Christian is that we can walk down those similar roads that even Jesus walked down as he walked to the cross, as he walked to Calvary, as he crawled to Calvary under the weight of the cross. He knew this is not my destiny. This is not my forever. This is just a brief little while. Hang me on that cross, punish me for the sins of the world, bury me in a tomb. That's not forever. That's just a little while. God, this season of COVID-19 that we're in right now, it's just a little while. 
That season of cancer, that season of depression, that season of frustration, that season of going without the thing that we are wanting the most, that season that somebody's facing tonight, it's just a little while. Darkness and nighttime does not last forever. Morning is coming. Father, give us the strength to make it to morning. Give us the courage to not cower amidst the darkness. And give us the confidence to know that Jesus has delivered us. He has raised us to greater things. Father, I pray you would encourage us tonight. You would help us to make it to the morning. And know that when we get to the morning, we will have joy because Jesus is the catalyst that turns sorrow into joy. So while we wait for morning to come, we celebrate the promise of Jesus who's already shown us a preview of our own resurrection, of our own deliverance. His death, burial, and resurrection is proof to us that the thing that we're going through personally, nationally, has already been given a deliverance moment in the future. We just have to wait for it to come. And in the meanwhile, we take heart. We are of good cheer because Jesus has overcome the world. Our place in Him is greater and more secure than anything else. Father, we love you. We thank you for this promise tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.